high inflation and high interest rates to offset inflation in the long term, hang on to your seats here, produce bull markets in stocks historically. Wow. Why? How can that be? Inflation is bad. It's a terrible thing. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Uh, we are going to befuse, confuse, bemuddle, uh, uh, defuse, and strain all of our listening audience as we talk about things such as Zambia's debt restructuring negotiations with China and other things of great bearing on your daily life. <clears throat> right. Well, actually, yes. they do have bearing. They do. It's just distant. <laughs> it comes around eventually. I got a question from Steve. Uh, he's asking about I-bonds. Would this be a safe investment for my wife and I? Uh, the interesting thing about I-bonds, they're not investments. They're savings vehicles. Correct. And as far as savings vehicles, they're incredibly safe. Now, you do have to recognize the caveat that you can't liquidate them for a year. Once you stick the money in there, you got to leave it there for a year. Now, let me, throw interest, this, let me throw this in there, too, because people have heard us say that, and I get this question a lot. Well, what's the penalty if I do? There isn't a penalty. You simply cannot. You cannot 100%. liquidate them. You cannot sell them. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, the, it's, you don't lose anything in the first year if you try to sell. You just can't sell it. And you can't sell it to another person. There is no secondary market. You got to sell it back to the government. And you will take an interest rate penalty. After the first year. If you don't hold them for five years. Right. So those are the, those are the only caveats. As far as their safety is concerned, they're backed by the people who print the money, which is as safe as you can get. What, what's more, it's, it, this is, I'm going to come out here. Usually we say safety uh, is defined by like a bank and FDIC. This is safer than that. Uh, it, it's safer than social security. It's safer than the VA payment for disability. Uh, the bonds of the United States government are protected by the United States Constitution. The Veterans Administration has some congressional acts that protect it. The FDIC is protected by Congress and insurance and so on. There's congressional acts. It's not constitutional. A United States Treasury bond is protected by the U.S. Constitution. If they ever get to a point where they can't pay all their bills which I don't see in the near future, but if they ever did, worst case down the road, they don't have to pay Social Security at the level that they do have to pay the bonds. So, yeah, yeah, it's safe. Series I savings bonds also have a limitation. It's $10,000 per person unless you use your tax return money to buy it, and then it's up $15,000 per person. And they're currently paying 9.62% through if you purchase them through the end of October. Now, so, now, this is kind of a funny thing. I've seen this as a trick that people are doing. There are people that are making a quarterly payment to the IRS at the end of the year that is $15,000 more than they expect to need to pay the IRS so that they get a $15,000 uh, refund that they can then apply toward their Series I treasury bond. It's a little trickery, but uh, I guess the... The IRS well, gets to sit on that money for a little bit, so who knows? Um, and of course, if you hold them over time, the interest rate is going to vary. If if interest rates go, if if inflation goes down as the 
Fed seems to think it will in 2023 and 2024 to 2%, and you're still hanging on to your I-bonds, your interest rate will go down to 2%. Or a little little bit higher than 2%, but yeah. Uh, So basically, it looks back at inflation and said, how high was inflation? That's what we'll pay you. Currently, it carries no interest above inflation, the current versions of them. So- it, for temporarily for a relatively small amount of money, well, maybe $20,000 is not a small amount of money for the husband and wife, but right. you so can get some interesting interest rates there. Those caveats about making sure, hey, if you've got $20,000 in the bank and you're like, this isn't making me a lot of money, don't put it all into treasury I-bonds because you won't have any money in the bank anymore and your interest rate on a credit card is probably right. higher than what they're paying on the I-bond. So keep savings on hand. Only put away what you can afford to not touch for at least a year. Right. And I want to say something else here. The Fed, the members of the Federal Reserve are kind of, their speeches are indicating that they are not going to dramatically lower interest rates in the near future. Right. Now, by say near future, as far as they can see into the distant future, because they're still scared of inflation. So just like they kept interest rates effectively at zero for a long time, probably too long. They will probably tend to keep 3% or so interest rates in short-term, short-term interest rates, even when inflation has dropped down to the 2-point-something percent range. What does that mean to you? In interest rates on bonds in the future, the market is saying it, the Fed is saying it, are going to be higher than they have been. Now, what does that mean? That means that the bonds in your existing portfolio will be worth many cases, if you bought them on the secondary market, and almost everybody does, will probably be worth less if you sell them at any time in the next decade or so than what you paid for them. Unless they're maturing sooner. Right. So if you hold them to maturity and they don't fail. mm -hmm. So U.S. government stuff, don't worry about failure there. But if you've got highly high quality bonds that don't fail between now and maturity uh, maturity you're going to get back what the the sticker price um, right minus inflation obviously minus inflation though you won't and see that come out what does that mean if you want to look at the macro picture what if there is there anybody out there that has a portfolio is there any institution or institutions that have portfolios of bonds that they're using to back guaranteed payments yes Insurance companies. Yeah. So the insurance companies that were offering above market rate interest rates over the last several years, when interest rates get back up and things recover to a more normal situations, if they got a run on all those annuities, those tax deferred uh, fixed annuities that they sold, and they sold a lot of them, if they get a run on those, and they may very well get a run on those, I wouldn't be surprised in a few years to see some insurance companies start to slide downhill and maybe go under. Why am I saying that? Because I've been in this business now for over 40 years. And 40 years ago, that's what was happening. Why was it happening? Because Paul Volcker raised interest rates, just like the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates now. A couple of years later, the insurance companies started to fold. The ones that everybody thought, matter of fact, some of them were A-plus or AA-plus rated and shortly thereafter, they were insolvent. Now, is that guaranteed to happen again? No. But remember that of all the major financial systems in the United States, and there are a lot of financial systems in the United States, for instance, the stock market, if you have your money at a broker, 
There's something called the SIPC. If the broker dealer goes under, the SIP steps in to replace a certain amount, up to $500,000, of what you had in that broker dealer. If a bank goes under, the FDIC steps in and replaces your money. Now, obviously, I want to put a caveat in there about the SIPC. They don't replace market losses, but they will replace your securities if the company goes under. Not, How about not insurance the, not the, Like if you buy Tesla and Tesla goes under, they don't replace that. It's no. the person that's holding your stock for you. Right. If you put your money in an insurance company in a guaranteed fixed rate account, not a variable position. Those are covered under mutual fund laws. If you put it in a fixed rate account in an insurance company and the insurance company goes over, there may or may not be state coverage to replace some or part or all of your money. It is a risk. It is a risk we haven't seen raise its ugly head in 40 years. But 40 years ago, the head was raised. But it's been 40 years since we, since we have seen this dramatic increase in interest rates that caused bond portfolios to lose money. So this is one of those things to be aware of at this point, that the safety of a guaranteed fixed interest rate from an insurance company is only as safe as the company itself. The amount of money that you give to any insurance company to hold in a fixed position, fixed guaranteed insurance interest rate position, shouldn't be any larger than the amount of money you would invest in that company as part of your portfolio. Right. Because if it goes under, it goes under and you are an unsecured creditor. I agree with that. There are dangers around even things as, uh, air quotes, safe as insurance. Um, it's important that, very important, that you read the contract before signing up to get an insurance product. It is If you can't understand it after you've read the first page, you maybe not need to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. And man, I wish I could underline that, put that in bold and italics and scream it from a rooftop. If you're buying well, an insurance product and you start to read the contract and after the second page, you're more confused than when you open the thing up, you maybe don't need it. Well, let me, let me caveat that. It's like a lot of other things. Hire a qualified fiduciary who, to whom you pay a fee, who not a commission, to look at that and, say, and ask the question, is, in, is it in my best interest to have this? Can you explain it to me? That's preferable. Absolutely. And, and the qualified fiduciary who is going to, there are, there are people who don't sell insurance products. They are rather work. They are insurance advisors. There's investment fiduciary, independent investment advisors who will not receive a con, not receive a commission. And that's critical when you ask somebody's opinion about something financial. It's not like when you're buying a house and you can go look at the house and you can talk to the neighbors and you can see what houses have been selling for around there and the fees are fully disclosed to you. That's cool. You pay the real estate agent to find your house. Good. That's a commission. But when you're dealing with securities, you can't touch them. You can't examine them. You can't go talk to their neighbors. At that point, if you have a significant amount of money, enough that you're going to be living, you want to live on it at some point, it's important to you. I believe it is important to hire a fiduciary investment advisor who will pledge total and sole loyalty to you and not to some corporation. I'm prejudiced on that subject because that's what we are. Prejudiced? But I've been a broker. <laughs> I've been an insurance agent, and I can tell you that I thought I was doing a wonderful job in many cases when, in fact, I wasn't. I was, in fact, working for a corporation, and the corporation was telling me, this is the best thing you can do for your customer, and I believe them, 
and I got promoted and everybody was happy until things went south and then people weren't happy. And I, we have learned our lesson in that area. So we decided to become an independent fiduciary investment advisor. If you have enough money to be financially independent, enough money to retire on your portfolio, you don't need a broker. You need an independent investment advisory firm. Do you have to pay them a fee? Yes. Will they probably save you more than they're charging you? Yes. So that's I, I, that's my soapbox. Thank you. Uh, I promised that I would talk a little bit about China. Uh, one of the benefits that we're seeing right now from the China lockdowns isn't just from the China lockdowns. That sounds really sad that I am saying we're getting a benefit from it. But the price of oil and gas dropping as fast as it is, is due directly to China's drop in crude oil imports. And starting in 2020, they, they've been importing less crude oil. Uh, and this year, it's down quite a lot. Uh, it's down about 10% from what it was last year. And this is with them being the only ones other than India able to buy the discounted oil from Russia. So they have discounted oil and they're still lowering their imports. Why? Well, there's the obvious reason is it's in 20% of the nation is in lockdown and has been. It's been a different 20% month by month, but it's still 20% of the nation rolling lockdowns all over the country since February. That's not good for driving around. Their lockdowns are a bit more draconic than ours was. It's you go out and you're in trouble and maybe in jail. Uh, here you might get a fine back then, and even that was protested. So that's number one. But number two is just as important, maybe more important long term. China is, uh, the new cars in China right now are about 30% electric. Not that each car is 30% electric, but 30% of the cars being purchased right now are electric. And I know there are a lot of people that are kind of rolling your eyes saying, Jake's talking about electric cars again. I don't have an electric car, just as a side note. I'm looking at the technology and I'm saying it's more cost effective long term to have an electric car than an internal combustion, unless you've already got one paid off. I do. At some point, my next car is going to be electric. Um, what's happening in China, they're buying electric cars that wouldn't be roadworthy in the United States. Um, the technology isn't really there to replace the internal combustion car for everybody in the United States right now. It's just not convenient. You can't drive far enough. The time it takes to recharge is too long. If you're taking a long road trip, a big chunk of the driving experience will be waiting for your car to charge at different places. Technology is coming to replace that to make it faster and easier and your distance much, 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 much farther. What I'm talking about at China, though, for them, it works. 90% of the population of China travels less than five miles a day. So we're not talking about big road trips here. The big road trips usually go on rail. So they don't drive long distances. It makes a lot of sense for them to buy really cheap electric cars that wind up over their lifetime being less expensive than a really cheap internal combustion car. What does that do for long-term oil demand when China has been a rising demander of oil 
for decades. And the population of China dwarfs the population of the United States. If they're buying less oil, and this is the long-term trend because a third of their cars now this year are electric, that's only going to increase into the future. What does that say about oil prices in the future? As we wean ourselves off of it, because technology's just gotten too good to argue with, not because, I mean, it's nice to, to, to pat yourself on the back and tell you, you you're making the planet greener or whatever, but the reality is that people are doing it because it's cost-effective or cool or some combination of the two. If we're looking ahead at that, that says that we're already past the point of the most oil pumped in a year on the planet, and it was probably 2019. And we're looking across now at American production of oil being really high, but not as high as it was in 2019. And we're looking at Saudi production and Iranian production and Iraqi production. And you go down the places that it's really high production right now, but not as high as 2019. And Russia's definitely not as high as 2019. And this is another world news situation. Um, the... Uh, the the Russian, uh, oh man, I lost the story, but uh, basically the Russian uh, government over this mobilization of men, um, oil and gas companies are government companies there. They're state-sponsored. And there are whole sectors of the oil and gas area that are on shutdown right now that have just gotten letters to their employees saying report for mobilization because we were going to lay you off anyway. And that's 100% of whole departments that are going to be taken away. So don't expect production to ramp up in the United States anytime soon. Even if oil prices get high again, the amount of money required in an initial investment is likely not going to get paid off between now and when the demand drops even farther. Um, and I realize that this is a controversial subject for some reason. There was a time when leather was the number one transmission of energy in the United States, that all these big steam plants used leather belts to transmit energy from one cog or wheel to another. And then rubber came along. And U.S. Leather was one of the, the 15 largest companies on the planet, and then it wasn't. And it had been leather as a technology base for millennia had been a sure bet, and then it wasn't because technology changed. Oil and gas hasn't, it, it hasn't been around for millennia. It hasn't even been around for millennium. We're talking about a much shorter period, but our memories don't go back very far. And we, we are finding other ways to create this energy. That isn't to tell you that you can't make profit buying Exxon or any a number of other oil companies right now because they're in the business to make a profit. Um, in fact, we hold those companies in many of our portfolios. That doesn't mean that they have a great life expectancy. So that was my start in China, move to Russia, and then cover oil and gas and electric cars at the same time. It was a very focused conversation there. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. 
we are uh, a a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is in no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this st- in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. Information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people know phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.